Welcome to Risking Enchantment, a podcast about art, beauty, and the Catholic faith. Hosted by Rachel Sherlock. Hello, and welcome to the first ever episode of Risking Enchantment. Um, This is a podcast about the Catholic faith, beauty, art, literature, poetry, music, and pretty much anything that takes our fancy. Uh, I'm your host, Rachel Sherlock, and before we get into introductions, I thought I would give a little bit of information about the mission of this podcast and what we hope to achieve and what it's all about. So, as I said before, we want to talk about art and culture in all of its various forms, whether or not it's religious or kind of secular or a mixture of the two, um, and look at how that draws us closer to God. Um, I think we I think there's a general sense in our modern world that there's a a kind of crisis of truth and faith and beauty um, within the world in general and within our church. And uh, when I was setting up this podcast, I was particularly inspired by a quote from Georges Bernanos, who's most famous for writing The Diary of a Country Priest. And he said, What the church needs is not critics, but artists. When poetry is in full crisis... The important thing is not pointing the finger at bad poets, but oneself to write beautiful poems, thus unstopping the sacred springs. Now, obviously, that seems like a little bit of a contradiction because sitting around on a podcast and talking about art and culture is, in fact, being a critic. (laughs) But the hope of the podcast is to inspire people to seek out the transcendent and the beautiful and to have it transform their lives and have it draw them closer to God. And that's where the name for the podcast came from, Risking Enchantment. Um, It's from a T.S. Eliot poem called East Coker. And in this context, it really struck me as a challenge to step out of the mundane and the rationally explainable and the scientism that grips our world at the moment and to step into the elevated and the transcendent and this experience can often be as unsettling as it is awe-inspiring as any encounter with the truth calls us to convert our lives to God and so while the enchantment that we're seeking is a beautiful thing it's also a risk um, because the hope is that we will step into God's will for our lives Um, So each week I'll be talking with a friend about an aspect of arts and culture and the Catholic faith. But uh, for this first episode, um, I have both of the wonderful friends who have kindly helped and accepted to take on this podcast with me. So I will have them introduce themselves now. Uh, To my left, we've got Phoebe Watson. I'm Rachel Flatmate, and yes, we are 221B. Yeah, we are Sherlock and Watson and nobody believes us and it's great but we haven't really solved any mysteries uh, least of all the mystery of how to work the podcast software so we'll, we'll have to work on that yeah we'll definitely figure that out and then on my right is Maria Connolly hello I wish I had a more interesting surname that's all I can say um having the two detectives here with me today must leave me the criminal um, <laughs> I hope not anyway we'll or, or worse or Mrs Hudson <laughs> Or our author. Yeah, or possibly, yeah, exactly. But I am um, an American living in Dublin, and that's how I got to know these two wonderful young ladies. And um, I'm just very excited about this podcast as well, because I think it's really important, especially here in Ireland, um, we establish a community of people that can think and talk about things that really matter to us. So, Brilliant. Um, I think... Actually, I should probably introduce myself a little bit. (laughs) So, as I said at the top, I'm Rachel Sherlock. I am from Ireland. I'm living in Dublin. um, And I have a background in English and music. And I did a master's in Viking and Anglo-Saxon studies, which means that I did, in fact, write my dissertation on dragons. Um, (laughs) We're all jealous. (laughs) (laughs) And I, um, I... as you might expect from someone who loves Norse things and Anglo-Saxon myths, I'm a huge fan of Tolkien. Um, that's pretty much the first thing everyone knows about me. And I also love music and I love 
reading and literature and that's pretty much where my passion is. Whereas I have a far less interesting background as a civil engineer working here in Dublin as well. Rachel and I studied together in Cork which is my home city in Ireland and I also love reading greatly. I'm a big C.S. Lewis fan. Yep. And I, Maria, speaking again here, um, am also an English aficionado. So I did literature in college and um, through that met my husband, um, who also did English literature and Old Norse and um, Norse mythology in college. So we have a lot of books in our house and also one 17-month-old daughter. Um, who is quite the handful. Um, and enjoys taking all the books down. She does, she does. She also enjoys her own books, but I think she prefers mom and dad. So, so um, yeah, so I'm a stay-at-home mom at the moment um, and loving it, the chance to be able to spend time with her and read to her lots and lots of books. <laughs> that sounds almost terrifying, Maria. <laughs> it is if she's 17 months old. <laughs> 17 months old. Um, amazing. So I think for the first episode, I think for most, for the episodes going forward, we'll probably, the plan is to take a particular either theme or work or aspect that we're going to look into and just discuss it. But as this is the first episode, I think it makes most sense to try and introduce ourselves a little bit, a little bit further than we've already done. So I've set everyone three questions um, and I have them written down here along with my answers which I now <laughs> realise means that they can look at my answers. And we're not going to copy. Yeah promise. definitely it'll be such a surprise. Um, but yes so the first question is um, name three books that most represent your personality or your character. So they don't have to be your favourite um, but they do have to give people an insight into who you are. So Will I go first? Or go for it. Okay. Go for it. So, as I mentioned before, pretty obvious. Number one, Lord of the Rings. <laughs> well done. Okay, maybe we are going to copy. <laughs> I yeah. Um, it's it's not a secret. I fell in love with Lord of the Rings when I was about, um, I think, around eleven. It was after the movies came out. I know, shock horror. I watched the movies first, <laughs> but I yeah I it. It's kind of hard for me to understate how much it influenced my life. It drove me to a love of languages and a love of myth and a love of history and English. And it's, yeah, it really, I think it it speaks a lot to who I am, the level of detail, the kind of intensity of the, the history and the linguistics. Um, I am the person in the friend group who will always come up with the not so maybe interesting etymology of every word that everyone's talking about. So, uh, yeah, that's that's me. I think for my second book, it's probably is also maybe a bit of a cliche. I'm going to go for the Habit of Being, which is the collection of Flannery O'Connor's letters. I love Flannery O'Connor. I love her fiction. I really do love it. But her letters really speak to me, and I really love how she can be incredibly spiritual and incredibly thoughtful while also making jokes and being hilariously funny and sarcastic and um, withering and I think she just captures a real sense of myself when I feel like the only way to be close to Christ is being sort of sublime and holy and floating off the ground um, so that's another one that really speaks to me and then finally I hope this one will be a little bit of a curveball which I'm going to say is uh, the Brambley Hedge series <laughs> um, which is a series of children's picture books um, so whereas um, Lord of the Rings kind of spoke to my intellectual interests and the habit of being speaks a lot to like my personality I think the Brambley Hedge books are really representative of how I live my home life and how I want to live my home life, which is um, the Brambley Hedge books are about a series of mice who live in a hedge and it's all very sweet and very cute and they have all kinds of adventures in which they get stuck in the snow or um, they, yeah, they throw in a, an, a ball and it's all a bit of a muddle but it's beautiful and the illustrations are so homely and so cozy and it's about 
to me it's about a simple life lived well um and so yeah Brambley Hedge is number three. <laughs> it ties beautifully into what our friends accuse you of, which is living in a fairy tale. <laughs> yeah, I do constantly get accused of that. It's the um, best way to live, Rachel. <laughs> we all know it. Yeah, pretty much. I'm really pleased that's on your list, because I gave that to you for Christmas one year. Yep, you know, you did Was that well. your introduction to it, Rachel? No, no. We gave it to you. No, I, I used to read the books, and there's, a, a, there's actually a stop-motion animation, which I would highly recommend, particularly the winter one, for anyone who wants a Christmas viewing. Um, but yeah, no, I had them growing up. So, Phoebe, do okay, you want Okay, I'm going to rustle my paper out. <laughs> So, when Rachel told me this question, I laughed, and <laughs> she said that the first one on my list had to be Anne of Green Gables. It's just a given. She is Anne, yeah, basically. Exactly. But I just love Anne as a character. Um, I think she's one of my all-time favourites, because she's just this girl who keeps trying to do well and making mistakes. And going off into dreams of her own, and it's just really happy and cute. And Anne isn't perfect; she makes a lot of mistakes. Um, yes, she does. <laughs> but I, she keeps trying, and yeah. I listened to it. it for the first time on audiobook only about a month ago, and um, I think Phoebe got really annoyed because the the reader was very good but quite slow, so it was nine hours long. Which wow. <laughs> For a children's book, was probably quite a slog. Um, but I, yeah, I used to get so I would be listening to something, and then I would turn around to Phoebe and say, "No, this is you can't do this to me. This is ridiculous. She can't make this mistake." And then she asked me about something, and I go, mm, "That doesn't happen until book three. Sorry." <laughs> yeah. Um, and then the next one on my list is C.S. Lewis's Out of the Silent Planet, um, because. Part of it, it really ties into my love of science and physics, but also nature. It's about a guy who gets kidnapped onto this space mission, um, but C.S. Lewis, being the non-scientist that he is, makes the spaceship round, because it's before the time of spaceships, and he hypothesizes that the gravity works by round shapes rather than the weight of something, um, which is absolutely beautiful. And he, they go off to Mars, which is like the slightly older planet, and it explores the idea of what an unfallen race would look like. Um, so they're these unfallen, well, three different races under the guardianship of an angel. And their world is just so beautiful. It's like reading pure poetry in descriptions of mountains and nature that's not quite our nature, but all the more beautiful because it's different. Um, and then the last one on my list is a book called The World's First Love by Archbishop Fulton Sheen. And that's an absolute favourite of mine, but it's also the book which introduced me to the love of Mary as my mother and really softened my heart towards her when I was coming into the Catholic Church. And again, it's so beautifully written and just unveiled a whole world of beauty for me, which I'd been shutting myself off to. See, that's so beautiful. I picked a children's book, but um, <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> it's all sorts, Rachel. <laughs> I mean, I put the children's books first. Yeah, so. that's fair. That's okay. I feel better now. I'm sure Mary has nothing against mice. Uh. <laughs> Um, so that brings us to my three books. Um, I found this really hard because if you ask me what my three favourite books are, I would tell you, hands down, The Lord of the Rings 1, 2, and 3. <laughs> Which would be copying Rachel and also not completely accurate because, as we all know, Tolkien wrote them as one book. Um, but I'm not even going to include Lord of the Rings on my list, even though it is a book that has shaped me. Um, and it's the book that I most enjoy and that most moves me. Um, because I want to include um, the Chronicles of Narnia. I know it's not one book either, but bear with me. Chronicles um, work. <laughs> Chronicles of Narnia. Um, and I say that because um, I think it really shows um, a side of me that's always been yearning to have something more, to have something magical in the mundane. And I say that because I remember after I first read the Chronicles of Narnia, 
myself because my mom had read them out loud to us when I was very small. But after I first read them myself, I was about eight or nine. And I remember walking up and down the street um, where I grew up in Texas, um, touching as many trees as I could because I was convinced that I could find a way to enter Narnia. And I didn't have any wardrobes in my house. I don't know many Americans who do, <laughs> but we call them closets there anyway. Um, but I, I needed, I needed, I wanted to be in a world um, where bravery and heroism and um, beauty surrounded me and where even children could do great things. And um, yeah, so I think the Narnia books really, um, I guess, illustrates the yearning that I've always had to make everyday things magical. Mm. I think Lewis does that amazingly in those stories because as we know, they're an allegory for our faith, but but done in a way in which there's a whole new world um, to help us to re-see the things that we know, the, the spiritual realities that we live, um, but done in a, in a fairy tale format. And um, I guess it's a really good reminder and a really good, um, it's motivating for me to think that in the midst of our day-to-day -day grind, you know, being a stay-at-home mom, um, there can still be magic and dragons and a talking lion. And maybe those things don't have the same names. Maybe those things have, you know, the names of God or <laughs> spiritual warfare or whatever, whatever the struggles that we have. Um, but it's that yearning for more, for the magical, um, that I think really speaks to me. Um, my second book is... Um, actually not a book either <laughs> now there's my third oh my goodness <laughs> but my you really stuck to the reading, I know right? <laughs> I know I never really followed reels that well as you can tell um but um my second book um is the Oscar Wilde's fairy tales um I was torn between that one and Northanger Abbey because I have always identified with Catherine Moreland who um, <laughs> lived in a world of full of fancy and um, had a very overactive imagination, which I've always identified with because I think sometimes um, my imagination can get a bit out of control. But the way, um, or the reason that I chose Oscar Wilde in the end um, is because of the sheer voluptuousness of his imagery and the beauty of his words. And he himself was an aesthete, um, an aesthete, I can never say that word right, my husband always makes fun of me. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, he himself believed in beauty and he had a um, complicated life and struggled all throughout his life with the idea of beauty and was particularly attracted to Catholicism, um, although he had a hit and miss relationship with it. Um, because of the beauty that he found in the liturgy and in the rites and in the symbols that the church uses. Um, so I think his fairy tales for me show that side of me. Symbols mean a lot to me. They mean the world to me. And all of Oscar Wilde's fairy tales are both beautiful in and of themselves, and they're also beautiful symbols. Um, he's also an Irish writer, so... That helps. Yeah, and saying that we're here in Ireland with this podcast, I figured we should at least include one. Um, uh, and then the last work that I wanted to talk about was um, a poem from one of my favorite poets, um, John Keats. And it's, I, I think it's just called Sonnet, um, but it starts off um, by saying, when I have fears that I may cease to be um, before my pen has picked my teeming brain, something along those lines. It's a short sonnet and it's about Keats's mortality. And I think Keats died at 24 or something like that. Yeah, I think that's right. And uh, his critics say that if he had lived longer, he would have been one of the greatest poets. He already was, but they say he would could have become the greatest poet in the English language. Um, but that poem for me has always um, spoken to me because ever since I was small, I've had a very strange relationship with the idea of death. Um, and death has always kind of... Um, fascinated me and obsessed me and when I was small terrified me um so the idea of more like the fact that we are mortal and that our lives are only so long and that we are ceaselessly moving along them um I guess it just gives the meaning and the urgency to anything I do because we only have one life and we only have one chance to love um to love God and to love others so that poem has always spoken to me in that way um, of, you know, Tempest Fuji, we have to get our 
act together <laughs> and get moving. You know, there's an urgency to everything we do. Um, and I think that's something that's very Catholic as well. And very Irish, you know, the understanding of death. And mm. death is not something to ignore. It's something to be aware of so that we can be living for the next life, you know, and not just for this life. Um, so those are my three works. That was amazing. <laughs> and I'm just going to interrupt here and say that we're going to try to link everything in the show notes so that you yeah. don't have to go searching back through them. <laughs> yes, yeah, I'll try and provide links for everything. Um, if we can work the software. I, yeah, I think it's. I, I think we can do it. We can figure it um, out. Well, I was going to come in and say, um, when you were talking about the Chronicles of Narnia, I think that's so funny because... I have a very, very lame story of, of what I used to be like when I was a kid, which was I would genuinely walk around my garden and say, an adventure is going to happen now. <laughs> <laughs> that's the thing, like, we all have this longing, don't we, for something yeah. extraordinary I, to happen I was, to us. I was convinced that at any moment, one of all of the fairy tales that I had ever read was about to, to happen. Start and and just I just to... had to be aware enough, or I just had to look in the right place, I'd see something moving in the trees, or I'd see, you know, like, something would happen. And I used to genuinely do the whole, like, it's going to happen now. <laughs> No. <laughs> um, and yeah I definitely got the same experience from the Chronicles of Narnia I've told this story a million times um, well, I live, my parents home is a detached home so it's not actually next to any other homes but we did have a crawl space in the attic so we didn't have a lot of big wardrobes but we did have a crawl space in the attic which is very like the one described in The Magician's Nephew so I was always convinced even though that's not even the magical bit of that story like they still have to get into the study and then go to the next world but I was always convinced I'd find another house attached to my completely detached house <laughs> <laughs> and in that house an adventure would happen now exactly <laughs> whereas we technically had a crawl space but it was horrible so mm. I never went in there okay where's your spirit of adventure Phoebe <laughs> well when it's stuff full of like that okay. polystyrene oh, insulation yeah. that you really don't want to breathe in <laughs> no. no maybe better not yeah um. I had too much common sense unfortunately <laughs> oh yeah. there we go um, and we just said you were an Anne <laughs> But I, yeah, but I think actually the point you brought up there is really important. And I think it's something the three of us share and I think a lot of people share, which is that particularly as children, you did yearn for a world that was bigger than yourself and more romantic and more true. I think the word mm. is true, that right. like there is a yeah. truth to it that is not actually our experience of the real world even as children that everything's a lot more boring and mundane and that's not to say I had a I had a great time when I was a kid and I was I had a great time playing imaginary games as a kid uh but I, I <laughs> quite a lot um, but there's a bigger adventure that we're yearning for yeah. yeah I mean our faith gives us that like our life is that right yeah that we're yeah. going on an adventure yeah um, towards God and I I sometimes I wonder because I hear the language of a lot of the saints and a lot of the mystics have written about being swept up in the love affair that is your relationship with Christ. And um, as someone who still obviously struggles with prayer, as most people do, um, I can find that hard to relate to. But I can understand it more when I think of it as being swept up in an adventure of someone bringing me into a whole world of nobility and virtue and sacrifice and pain that all has meaning and all has a bigger worth than just my individual like rises and falls of my various days um that's yeah that's really good well done for nailing that one on the head maria <laughs> so our second question was um because as you can tell from our introductions we're all kind of literature geeks like we <laughs> love books and we love poetry and things like that um but that's not the only thing i want to talk about and it's not the only thing that i think contributes to this sense of transcendence and wonder and things like that. So I wanted to draw in one of my personal favourites, which is architecture. <laughs> um, so our second question is, an experience in a church that drew you closer to God, specifically through either the atmosphere or the architecture of the church? Um, and since we're taking turns, I guess it's my turn again. <laughs> um, and hilariously, I set these questions and then realised that I had to come up with answers for them. <laughs> so, right. yeah. <laughs> so I set the question and then I was like, 
oh, what am I even going to say for this? And then I remembered um, a particularly profound experience I had two years ago on Christmas Day, uh, which is the perfect day for wonder. Um, my granny comes to visit us for Christmas, uh, but she's quite elderly. Uh, two years ago, she would have been uh, 91 at the time, so she's 93 now. Um, but she, so she's not able to sit through a mass. She's not really up to that anymore. But we, we still want her to come to a church and she still wants to come to a church on Christmas Day. So um, sometime in the afternoon on Christmas Day, we bundled her up in the car and brought her to a church, not super near us, but um, a particularly be beautiful church that's set in a very steep, deep valley and very narrow um and is a very very small church i keep trying to count how many seats are in it just because it, it blows my mind of how small it is um but it's it's very very small its main altar is actually the side altar from another church it got donated so it's a very little petite church and it's very beautiful but it's also quite actually american because it's got a lot of like wooden exposed beams and it's got that kind of sense to it and it feels very enclosed like it feels like there's foliage right outside the windows just from the angle of the valley um, and it feels very very enclosed and that particular Christmas day was a dark rainy dreary Christmas day and we all bundled into this church that had no lights on I think there might have been one or two at the bases of the two statues um, and it was very dark and very rainy and very... It's funny because it was Christmas Day and it was quite an Advent feel because there was this sense of expectation. It was this sense that we were sitting in the dark and something amazing was about to happen. And my dad asked me to sing in the bleak midwinter for me and my family. And so we just sat there in this very gloomy, very dark, but beautiful and it was the darkness just before the sunrise. That's what it felt like. It just felt like it was still and it was expectant and it was in that way wonderful like it was full of wonder and it's always really really struck me I just love that memory of being with my family and sitting around in an empty dark church on Christmas day um, and it's funny because even later the first one that popped into my mind but I think I, I didn't name it as my first one was because it was actually informed by that experience at Christmas which was that I was in Rome almost this time last year for the first time and we went to Santa Maria Sopra Minerva um, which is just beside the Pantheon and again it was just about to close all the lights were off and if anyone has been to that church you know that there's a lot of incredibly beautiful churches in Rome but this is a gothic church which is a little bit unusual for Rome and so it has these high ceilings and these like dark walls and again it was sitting there in the dark with that sense of wonder that something incredible was going to happen that that adventure was going to happen now <laughs> <laughs> and yeah that was an experience that I had where just the actual space of the church and I think it's really funny because we were just having a discussion with our friend Ed who has a pet peeve where he says that all all Irish churches are too well lit um, <laughs> because they should be darker and they should have uh, that sense of not gloominess but that the it's not a shopping mall it doesn't need to be fluorescent lit all over um, and yeah that the the lighting and the space of a church can really inform an encounter with God. Yeah, that's a really interesting point about light because the church near where I work, where I go in to say the rosary every now and then, used to have a beautiful stained glass window behind the altar, like a huge one. So with Mary and then the crucifix above her and St. Patrick and St. Bridget on either side holding her cloak and it forms the shape of the miraculous medal. But it's a way for cleaning at the moment. Mm. And it's been a way for like the last six, eight months. Um, and the light in the church has changed so dramatically. Mm. Because now you've just got plain glass there, which obviously lets in all the bright sunlight. And you're like, mm, I can't see the beautiful gold mosaic mm. um, state like illustrations of the gospel writers beside the window yeah. now. Because... Mm. Of the stained glass because the stained glass is gone. It's funny they really didn't know what they were doing when, like, when they made stained glass. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. And they put it in churches yeah. for a reason. <laughs> and I was going to talk about that one, 
but I'm actually going to talk about a stained glass that's not in a church. It's mm-hmm. in the art in the National Art Gallery, and it's a Harry Clark stained glass, and it's again it's of the crucifix, but it's Mary holding Christ as he's just come down from the crucifix. So you've got the cross behind Mary, and then Mary, and then Christ laid out in her arms, and all the shapes are kind of slightly elongated. Um, and you've got saints surrounding her. You've got Saint Francis with birds, and I think Saint Scholastica. Um, but I just stopped and stopped for a good ten minutes at that beauty. And for me, that was a real encounter with stillness and a real encounter with the onus to slow down and all these people because it was in a very small room with like two co- a door either side so people just walking straight through so I was on one side of the room facing the painting and all these people like people walking through me like you know between yeah. me and the paint and the stained glass every yeah. now and then and it was just a contrast between the busyness of the world even in a gallery where yeah. you just go glance, 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 and that stillness that God calls us to encounter him in. That's really good. That's amazing. I don't suppose, you know, I presume it was meant to be in a church. Yeah. 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 I think it was from maybe Edinburgh or um, one of of the churches that had been in renovation and then... Yeah. But to be fair, I think you can sometimes see a stained glass window like that much better then oh, yeah. you could uh, when it's tucked because sometimes the stained glass isn't put you can't see it yeah it's not put on display the light behind it isn't right yeah it's too high up you can't see it quite properly yeah. so I wasn't insulted that it wasn't in a church but it was yeah it was meant to be in a church it was right. constructed yeah. for that in the beginning yeah right. that's interesting though there's so much talk of stained glass um I think it is my favorite art form um and I have two architectural things, just to keep breaking the rules, um, that you so kindly set up for us, Rachel. I, I put down, I, I tend to put two, so I think, okay, I, I think we'll survive. I think I think actually. Um, but mine are actually a sharp contrast, because the first um, was also in Rome. I mean, it's all of St. Peter's, really. Like, when you first walk into the, I guess, the arms, I guess they're called, the pillars that are... Um, surrounding St. Peter's Basilica Mm. um, that I remember I first walked into that plaza when I was 16 years old and I am a cradle Catholic I was brought up Catholic um, but never in my life had I felt such a sense of coming home or belonging as I did when I walked into that plaza into that square Um, I literally felt like I was being embraced. Um, It's almost the story of the prodigal son, isn't it? It is. It's so strong. And it's an Mm -hmm. architectural feat. It's amazing that that could evoke such feeling in somebody's soul Mm -hmm. just by stone and, you know, design. Like, it's amazing. Um, And then in the actual basilica, um, I remember we went to a mass um, that was in one of the side chapels there. And... It was a sunny day, and um, I don't know which of our listeners have been to Rome or seen the Basilica there, but behind the Baldacchino there is a giant stained glass um, Holy Spirit. Um, I'm not even sure who the artist is. I'm sure we can find that out for the show. (laughs) Right, Rachel? (laughs) But, um, yeah, so it's a giant stained glass of a dove meant to symbolize the Holy Spirit, And there are red and orange and yellow rays coming out of the dove. And I never really thought much about the Holy Spirit before then. I just made my confirmation. um, But even with that, it was a very academic thing for me. But I remember going up to and coming back from receiving communion in that small side chapel mass. um, I remember feeling like I was bathed in light um, because of the way the sun was coming through that stained glass window and falling on me. And it was, it was almost like, it was a very, very strong experience because it wasn't just the physical light, but I actually felt the light of grace in that moment, kind of mirroring the light from outside. And it was, it was very like, like sensitive, like it was very feeling 
type experience. I know that's not necessary or important for prayer or for our relationship with God, but it's a moment I'll never forget because that for me has always been what stayed in my head as what the Holy Spirit is, the light in the darkness, the light in the shadows of my heart. Um, when I'm least expecting it, the sudden shaft that comes through and illuminates the things that maybe I didn't see very clearly. Um, so for me, stained glass has always been one of the most, um, I guess, spiritual forms of architecture. And then the other, it's actually on the same trip, so I highly recommend going to Rome if you get the chance, <laughs> um, but was the catacombs. And that's not something that any architect would, you know, um, boast about having constructed, <laughs> because I don't think it was any architect who was digging out the tombs for the first Christian martyrs. But I remember the feeling of awe and just overpowering wonder and and respect for the people that had given their lives rather than deny Christ. Um, and as you walk through the catacombs, the walls are right up close to you and you can almost sometimes only go single file. They're underground burial vaults for those who don't know. Um, all throughout the city of Rome, where the first Christians both buried their dead um, that died in the Colosseum during the gladiatorial fights um, that were killed by the emperors, and also where they celebrated mass. Mm -hmm. So there's small chambers in the catacombs, um, kind of like passageways that open up into these kind of little rooms where the first Christians would have huddled in the darkness um, to share Christ's body and blood. And that was an incredibly powerful thing for me as well, just because of the idea of the saints. And again, that, that sense that it's not worth, life, life is not worth giving up your faith, you know? Like our life is, is short and these people would have been dead thousands of years anyway now at this stage, yeah. even if they had denied their faith, yeah. but they chose the greater part. And, um, and we're walking through their tombs now because they did. Um, it's just like it was a strong reminder of the communion of saints that doesn't go away with the passing of time um, and that death doesn't win. Um, that now they're saints and martyrs and triumphant, um, even if they are in these tiny little tomb spaces, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think Rome, is a, are. Rome yeah. is a real encounter with the communion of saints. It is. Yeah. yeah. Even like the arms that you were talking about. I love the way they're all statued yeah. with different oh, yeah, saints. That's... And then in St. John Lateran's with all the 12 apostles. And they're gigantic. I, I love that yeah. experience of standing at the feet of the apostles. It's and like being Gondor or something. Yeah. It's yeah. Being the kings of old. <laughs> it does feel like the Argonauts. Like nothing yeah. prepared me. And no photo really captures how big they feel when yeah. you walk into St. John Lateran. They just feel enormous and it was the same in St. Peter's with the statues like I loved the one of Veronica mm -hmm. um, that sense of movement in stone which I'm kind of always blown away by but I, I if, if we have enough time I'll just say one more which you reminded me in Rome um, which was just such an incredible experience we went to the um, Basilica of St. Cecilia and it was a particularly poignant moment for us because we were traveling with um, and my friends and I were traveling and one of one of us was joining the Dominican Sisters of St. Cecilia. So this was our, yeah, this was our last big holiday as a, as a group. And so um, she, she really wanted to visit it, obviously. And um, it was a really, really beautiful church. And as we were kind of reaching around, we went to the gift shop and they were like, oh, would you like to see the foundations? And I think the catacombs, I could be wrong. There were catacombs of St. Cecilia. So. Yeah, um, but it's a little bit confusing because they're right beside the foundations of her home. Yeah. So I'm not, I, I, maybe I'm a little bit confused about the details, but they were like, oh, would you like to visit the catacombs? And we were like, oh, of course, this is one of, <clears throat> we were a little tight on budget, but um, this was one of our big visits for the holiday. So we wanted to make sure that we saw as much of it as possible. So we said, of course, and we all trooped downstairs and it was very nice. If anyone's been to any sort of Roman foundations, there's a lot of, oh, look at these stones on the ground that were there 2,000 years ago. And it is really impressive and it is really cool. And you do get a sense that like people actually walked on this or like, here's a bit of pottery or here's like, here's a grave of someone. And, but it feels like a very academically archaeological experience. And so we were just wandering around and having fun and goofing around a little bit. Scandalous. <laughs> um, I have to say. And we were going down a very long, <clears throat> narrow corridor, which almost felt like something from like a video game. And we turned and 
right beside us was this incredible chapel that was so decadent in its mosaics and it, there was a statue of saint cecilia and like you said with the um saints there was like the one with her decapitated on the floor uh no that's actually up in the church okay um <laughs> but it's that's no it's it's statue. <laughs> yeah um the it's a statue of her standing there and i think there's saint agnes and a couple of the other female martyrs um there's mosaics of them but it was so decadent and so lush and we like nobody advertised it anywhere nobody was like oh check out this amazing <laughs> chapel we definitely know that there was other people who visited the catacombs that looked around the first room or two and then went back up and didn't see it um because it was just it was such a surprise but it was again it was a real kind of encounter with like the real world or like the mundane and then expanding into the transcendent um i suppose we better get on to our last question um or second to last because i think at the end of each episode we're going to do a roundup question but we'll get to that in a minute um i want to ask an experience with secular or at least not explicitly religious culture that brought you closer to god um and i've just been talking loads but i think it's my turn again <laughs> no okay um and when i was trying to come up with an answer the first thing that kind of struck me was that um i actually maybe for good or for ill i don't necessarily separate a lot of the literature that i read with explicitly religious like theology or or mm -hmm. Um, like, you know, to me, reading Lord of the Rings obviously teaches me about God or reading Brideshead Revisited, it's a, it's a really Catholic book, so it obviously teaches me about God. So I find it hard to feel like those are secular works. Um, but in, so instead, I'm going to go for something a little bit different, which is music. And I don't necessarily have a specific one-time example, but I think for me, music... I don't listen to a lot of Christian music and that's not because I don't like it. I've been to Christian music concerts. I've been, I, there's lots of, I could identify lots of music that I do like, but on my day to day, I don't, that's not the music I tend to listen to. Um, but the music I do tend to listen to, I think music because it's always like exploring the questions of the soul, like any, any piece of, art is but there's few pieces of art that are so digestible as like a three and a half minute song and so it's like it's often that it's a really powerful glimpse into a real search for the soul and a lot of the music that I listen to is grappling with themes of religion so you've got something like Mercy Street by Peter Gabriel or one that I've been really struck with recently which is called All Colours of the Night by an artist called Peter Broderick um, which I'm not going to quote lyrics because it's much more of a like instrumental experience, but it does talk about encountering God um, actually in a dark room, which is exactly what I've been talking about. <laughs> um, but it, it always kind of takes my breath away that I can really encounter someone's search for God. And even when it's not explicitly religious, I think because music often deals with emotions that they're most aching, that any emotion like that is an emotion that correlates to our aching for God. So there's one in particular that I want to mention, which is Winter by Tori Amos. Um, Tori Amos deals with a lot of religious themes in her music, and some people would find it, uh, some people don't like that, and some people do. I really like it, but Winter isn't actually about that. It's about, well, it's not explicitly about it, because it is about the relationship between a father and a daughter, and it's one of the most heartbreaking representations of how that relationship feels from both sides and I listened to it my dad was the one who intro introduced me to Tori Amos and we listened to that song and I just there's a he used to drive me home from school so I remember dark nights where I would be sitting in the car with him and we would play that song and it was always such a powerful experience to have someone um, express that feeling and of course because it's between a father and a daughter then you have that feeling of like our ultimate father in heaven and the ultimate yearning and the yearning to be understood um, by him and the the need not to be left on your own. Um, so yeah, that's that's my example, which is Winter by Tori Amos. I'm going to be listening to that on the way home today. <laughs> so the example I came up with is kind of related because it's a musical um, and I chose Phantom of the Opera. Okay. Um, which is 
a movie and a musical and it's a soundtrack that I listened to a lot in my final year of college but I think one of the things that really draws me about it is the contrast between darkness and light and you've got this character called Christine Daae who's really grappling between the call of the dark side of the art of music and the lightness of it mm -hmm. um, and then contrasting that to for me it would be more related to books but there is sometimes a darkness in the literature that we read yeah as well as a light and it relates to me that way but one of my favorite songs from that is a song called past the point of no return and for me at that time I was just preparing to come into the Catholic Church and that was really going past the point of no return. <laughs> <laughs> wow, yeah. Um, in a good way, I hope. In a good way. <laughs> um, but that I always... It's, it's not Dante's Inferno, abandon all hope. <laughs> no, it is about abandonment, but more Sometimes an abandonment. It feels that way. <laughs> <laughs> it's about more about an abandonment of self to a higher... Of course. Yeah. Something higher. And that's always really related to me in my relationship to God, that he's calling us to trust him beyond what we can see. Yeah. Um, That's really good. Um, I actually thought of The Phantom of the Opera as well, but a wow. different song. I've been thinking of, um, I think it's All I Ask of You, mm. because yeah, I always absolutely. thought of that as like a song about the relationship between a soul and God. Um, but that's another story because that wasn't the one I was going to talk about today. Um, what I was going to talk about today is a book that I actually hate with all my guts. Um, this but is excellent. That I need to talk about because it has shaped the way I think of God and I see the world. Um, it's a book by Virginia Woolf um, called Mrs. Dalloway. And it's a book that I was... <laughs> Sorry, um, Phoebe and I are giggling because Phoebe knows that I um, don't have a lot of time for Virginia Woolf. Neither do I! I, I it, if anyone wants to like write in and tell me I'm wrong, I'm very happy to read it, but I, yeah. Well, I think you should read this book. And mm, it's, it's a very interesting short novel. It is rather objectionable at times um, from a Catholic um, perspective. <laughs> But the way Virginia Woolf in that book deals with perspective entirely changed the way I think about truth. Um, because the story is it's a story of a middle-aged, unhappy woman and her daily routine, basically. And um, I know there's a lot more to it than that. My English professor right now would be um, probably having a fit in the background. Um, <laughs> but the book is told through the eyes of many different characters um, through their perspectives. And I remember the class in which we discussed this story, um, the lecturer was going on about how that is how reality is, that reality isn't one thing or another. Reality, no one can have an understanding of reality because reality is different according to the lens or the perspective through which you see it. Um, and my Thomistic background, my 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 <laughs> Catholic education was having a bit of a heart attack at this, um, thinking he was saying that there is no such thing as objective truth. And I think that's what he was saying. And I think that's maybe what Virginia Woolf was trying to get at. And a lot of the other modernists, um, when they wrote about um, the different perspectives that the world can be seen through. But at the same time, it was as if a light bulb went off in my head. And I had a moment when I thought, of course, of course we can't know all the truth. Of course the truth is not knowable by one perspective. And of course we aren't right all the time. I mean, if we thought that we were, then we'd be dying of spiritual pride and intellectual pride and lots of other types of pride. But the only, the only person, the only being, the only, yeah, the only thing that can know everything, that can see every perspective, is God. And that's why it's incredibly important to keep an open mind when we speak to people that don't share our opinions or our views. Because I'm not saying, yes, everyone has an equal percentage of the truth, or everyone has an equal allotment of the truth, or everyone can see the truth as clearly as everyone else. But nobody, especially not myself, can see all of the truth. Um, and... For me, it was an, a humbling experience to understand God a little bit more. And saying that even sounds ridiculous to me now, because I can't understand God at all. And I always put God into a box, and I always make God more human 
because that's how I am and that's how I think and that's how I constantly that's what I constantly do to God I constantly shrink him to fit me and reading this book this troubling troubling book by this troubled (laughs) troubled woman um helps me helped me to understand God and to understand the way that I should think about the world and the way that I should think about people that aren't like me and that don't agree with me um, so I think it's a matter of perspective and a matter of of taking myself out of the place of God that mm-hmm. I had myself in and that I always consistently edge myself back into. <laughs> so it was a good reminder for me and, and a really unsettling book in that sense. Um, um, I'm really glad you brought that up because I don't think with this podcast, obviously a lot of it will be talking about things that we appreciate and mm-hmm. like and comfort us in a way. Um, but I don't intend to only talk about things that fit into our boxes or no. things that um, fit into what the Catholic Church would deem correct. Right. Um, because because it's risking enchantment that we're yes. trying to do here. And Absolutely. Riskiness is... It's always got to stretch us a bit, right? Yeah. Okay, that's amazing. I think we're going to round up. And I'm afraid we're going to spring this on you, Maria, because I forgot to send you the message last night. Uh, but as don't long worry. as I can break the rules, it's all good. Yeah. <laughs> it's um, all answered, entirely different. <laughs> um, so our last question, and I think we're going to do this for every episode, is going to be um, what has inspired you in the last week, month? Like, what have you been reading? Has there been anything you've listened to? So, um, what piece of art are you encountering at the moment? Precisely, is the words that I need. And since you put it so well, Phoebe, why don't you go first? <laughs> well, considering it was my question, I actually had to come up with the answer. Yeah. Um, and mine is the book that I'm reading at the moment, um, which is St. Francis of Assisi by G.K. Chesterton. And it's just beautiful and, as Maria said earlier, whimsical. And just lovely in all its ways but it's also it's written in a very interesting sense in that it's not a straightforward biography of St. Francis as a child, St. Francis like setting up the like reconstructing the church as a building and then trying to reconstruct the church as a whole through his order. It more takes like an aspect of St. Francis and looks at it throughout his whole life and one of my favourite parts of that was he was talking about the troubadours and then the jugglers that went with them and St. Francis' Francis's tra- transition from the troubadour and the singing of the love songs to the more ridiculous juggler and his embracing of that role of humility. But also I love how it gives a real sense of the world at that time because he argues that to understand St. Francis you can't take him outside of the context of what the church was before he came and what the church was during his time. So it's a really powerful book like that. I am going to have to read it, considering. I think I gave it to you? You did. Okay. (laughs) Um, We uh, give each other books a lot. Yeah, I mean... It is as it should be. Christmas is coming up. Guess what I'm going to get, everyone? Books. Um, Yeah, I think my answer... This is really funny because it's going to sound like I'm so intellectual and so um you know highbrow but you're gonna I'm, come across as such a snob yeah absolutely but i'm actually reading dante's inferno for the first time do you want to explain well, why hey, you're reading the that first time rachel yeah so you're not that snobby <laughs> keep going um, you also have at least the incentive of a book club to keep you going well so yeah i my work is quite near um the Italian Institute and so they have a series going on and unfortunately I missed in the previous years when I did not work near there and I missed the Inferno and the Purgatorio but um, they're doing the Paradiso so I'm trying to frantically catch up. Um, So I've only just started it although I do know a lot of background about it, I've heard a lot of people talking about it so I'm very excited to be reading that and certainly the start of it has, um, yeah it has that sense that I I think it's going to kind of blow my socks off a little bit. But in terms of something I've finished recently, I also, uh, to my shame, have never had never read uh, the Screwtape Letters before. And so I got it on audiobook recently and finished it a couple of weeks ago. And suffice it to say that it has impressed me so much that I have kept going back to listen to parts of it. 
and I yeah I really really love it I've been recommending it to everyone um it's I I, I don't want to say it's the best thing I've read, read by Lewis because I've read a lot of incredible things by Lewis it's probably just the most recent thing I've read by him but it certainly has really blown me away it's a beautiful combination of his like whimsical fantasy mm. and his faith yeah I think that's it because it is uh, while all like certainly as we discussed Narnia is that too but it's much more explicit so it's a real kind of meeting ground of what his imagination can do and what his theology can do and it's so, hilarious as well. it's very very that funny too. So it's worth a read. Um, okay, so I have been reading a lot of books that I've very much enjoyed, but I'm not going to talk about those just to change things up. And I think the main... What was the exact question again? Phoebe? I forgot it. It was some, some art. <laughs> no, and what, what art has been inspiring okay. you? So I am going to talk about an idea of something that my husband and I are doing that has been eating up my insides for the last few weeks slash months slash year um, that we're working on together and it's it's a way of making our home um, more enchanted and also more liturgical. Um, so you know in Narnia, if you've read Narnia, um, I hope you have because I don't want to give any spoilers, but the um, white witch um, rules over Narnia for I think it's a hundred years and during that time the entire forest is covered in snow and full of winter but Christmas never comes. So my husband and I were trying to figure out how to beat the frantic rush to put up Christmas decorations in October or whatever time they do these days and how to really live the season of Advent in our home but at the same time um, not be the weirdos who didn't decorate at all until the 24th. so we came up with the idea of making our home into a um, an Advent winter until Christmas Eve and decorating the entire house with white and silver and snow as if the White Witch were indeed in power in our home until Christmas Eve. And the night of, um, of Jesus's birth after our children but I should say child at the moment um after a child goes to bed we are going to change all the decorations out for the exact same decorations but in green and gold and um sparkling scarlet just so that just so that it really feels like um Christmas has come at last and the spell of winter is broken so I think for the last few months (laughs) Yes, I've been thinking about this since well before August. Um, I have been working on um, decorations and ideas of how to do that in practice and how to actually make that transformation happen. Um, Because I think it's incredibly important for people in general, but especially for children, to be able to tangibly see the symbols um, of our faith, especially in in our homes. Um, So that's something that has been kind of taking up all my mental space and energy and that I'm most excited about. Um, it's not a work of art that is finished yet, but it's something we're working on together. It's something we're very much looking forward to doing. So um, It sounds fabulous. Well, just come over <laughs> on Christmas Day and you'll see. You have to come over in Advent as well, though, so you can see the change. <laughs> I, because um, Maria told me about this yesterday, and I'm so glad that I forgot to tell Phoebe um, so that I could see her reaction live right now, which was one of awe and wonder. My husband put his foot down on actually having an effigy of the White Witch in our home <laughs> during Advent. He said, that might not be quite the idea that we're going for. <laughs> so we won't be having any witches around. But, but I think that's such a wonderful compromise because, um, yeah, I do think there's a real struggle. I definitely see the, the need for a penitential Advent. Mm, yeah. But... Also, Advent for me was such it's a time of wonder because, yeah. as, as you might have, yeah, as you might have guessed from my descriptions of the churches, I love the wonder of sense of sitting in a dark church and expectation. So it's the expectation, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I think keeping Advent has been really difficult for us because we usually leave at, here before Christmas and go to our family homes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you have to have the decorations up long enough to enjoy them before that. Yeah. Um. Which is always a battle between when do we decorate and how do we enjoy Advent. Yeah. Yeah. So, 
Well, so we'll let you know if it works anyway. And yeah. um, what our 17-month-old thinks. <laughs> if she even notices. She I'm, did notice the Christmas tree lights last year, so I'm hoping she notices a bit more this year. I, uh, I think she'll give you lots of constructive feedback. <laughs> lots of destructive feedback. <laughs> Considering how much she was enjoying destroying our sort of autumnal decorations here yesterday. She's good at that. She's good at that. <laughs> but that's amazing. Well, thank you so much for listening and we hope you'll join us again soon. And uh, thank you for taking this adventure with us that's happening right now. Right and we've definitely run moment. far over the time from what we expected to do. Yes. <laughs> we knew that was going to happen. Let's face yeah. it. Yeah, that's what, that's what this, this is going to be all about, running over time. <laughs> Mm, the 40 minutes you fed yeah <laughs> not gonna happen anyway uh, thank you very much and we hope to have you with us next time this has been Risking Enchantment music by Kevin MacLeod you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter with the handle at Seeking Watson and you can find out more about me and the podcast at rachelsherlock.com Thank you and God bless.